please be aware that this is a recording of a writing festival. As such, there are some adult concepts, probably a bit of swearing, and sometimes there might even be some triggering elements. So do be aware of that. If anything does make you feel uncomfortable, please stop listening at any point. Also, we do recommend you pop on some headphones. That way, the only person who can get offended is you. Welcome back to the Rights for Festivals podcast, where we're getting all lit up with the Wollongong Writers Festival. If you'd like to know more about Wollongong Writers Festival, go to www.wollongongwritersfestival.com or you can follow them on Twitter and Facebook. This session is Water, Blue Ecologies, with Christine Howe, Joshua Logg, Catherine McKinnon, Luke Johnson and Shady Cosgrove. Hi, everyone. Hello. Um, thanks very much, uh, very much for everybody coming today. Um, we're here today to talk about water, um, but we want to begin by acknowledging that we meet on country. We live, think and write on the land country and the sea country of the Wadi Wadi people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the people, places, cultures, communities and continuing histories of this place. Uh, we are five writers uh, from here, uh, from Wollongong, and we are five writers who work together. And the project that we, we want to talk about today um, comes out of a shift in the way that we've been thinking about how creative work is conceived um, and developed, um, and especially um, practice that actively wants to engage with social, political and environmental change. One of the problems we think with our modern neoliberal culture is that it's focused on the individual what Foucault calls a privileged moment of individualization. Our institutions tend to focus on individual success, but also individual failure, individual wealth, and also individual poverty. And this moment of individualization has led to a split of self from community and a split from the personal, uh, the, of, the, of the personal from the planetary. But there is another way of engaging with the world. Since the turn of this century, um, and actually before then, but I'm just going to be thinking about the sort of ways in which people have been thinking about it. Um, writers and thinkers have been offering alternative ways of being in the world. So if we think about um, James Lovelock, who offers the, the image of Gaia, a complex system of interconnectedness that sustains a living, self-regulating planet. Or Timothy Morton, who gives us the concept of the mesh, in and through which our encounters with other beings can become profound. Deborah Bird Rose and Tom Van Doren call for an entangled and circulating pattern of interaction with our planet. And Val Plumwood's ecofeminism actively seeks to resituate humans in ecological terms that is part of, community, of, of a community of human and non-human, animal, plant, water and earth. The community, the interconnection and the mesh is not just a description of the planet, but it's a call to change our way of being in the world. So one of the ways in which we can work against this individualising way of thinking is by thinking and working and being together. Anyone who is... At, actually, I've written down anyone who was at the climate action events um, this year, but I'm going to say everybody who was at the climate <laughs> events this year, will know that the act of coming together can be a joyous experience. John Berger tells us that a mass demonstration is an assembly which challenges what is given by the mere fact of people coming together. 
It may take a time for the challenge to have its effect. But if we keep working, thinking and being together, we can create a different world. And even if we don't acknowledge it, writing is also a collaborative art and a collaborative act. Contrary to popular belief, writing is not something which is done in isolation. We research in collaboration with other thinkers, writers and texts. We develop our ideas in conversation with other thinkers, other writers, other texts. And we share our work with other thinkers, writers and readers. Even the worlds we share are a space that allows for collaboration. The writer Ashley Shelby says, fiction is at its core an exercise in empathy. The act of standing in the shoes of another and inhabiting her life for a few hundred pages. I see this as a crucial step towards collective action. So as writers, we've been trying to work out ways to encourage the collaborative aspects of writing. The work we present today is by individual authors, but we work together, often literally working side by side. And it also, we also meet regularly to share our ideas and our words to provoke and to support each other. The novelist James Bradley argues that our current crisis demands that we find ways of living with impossible grief without breaking or turning away and of supporting those around us while they do the same. So meeting regularly to, to share ideas and to workshop each other's creative work is one way of making space for the deep creative thinking needed to face this, into this grief without turning away, retreating or shutting down. What we're going to be talking about today and what we're thinking about in our current project is water. Water is something particularly present in our Illawarran lives, um, living as we do alongside the expanse of the Pacific. But as you'll hear, we'll be thinking about this theme in different spaces as well. We'll take you inland along the Murrumbidgee, down the Murray, out over the ocean and even to the furthest borders of the Pacific. We've developed these works together through walks, conversations and workshops, many of these taking place by the water that is so present in our Illawarran lives. So what we're going to do today is each of us are going to read uh, either complete pieces or excerpts um, from what we've been working on um, and then we'll have a little bit of a conversation afterwards with you if you have any questions about what we've been doing about our process but also about our, about our texts themselves. So we're going to begin with my colleague and friend Shady Cosgrove who's going to be reading a lyric, lyric essay and then we'll move on to the other. Oh, thank you and thank you all for coming today. It's so exciting to see you and I see many familiar faces that um, fills me with joy sitting up here despite the somewhat... Um... Strange formal stage. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Thank you. So this is entitled Tour of Grief. Jeanette Winterson reminds us bridges join, but they also separate. As an immigrant to Australia, the water connects and separates Wollongong, where I live now, from the small island in the Puget Sound where I grew up in the United States. At North Beach, skydivers whoop overhead, the sand grips my toes, and swimmers lays between the flags just beyond the breaks. The beach where I grew up was rocky, freezing cold even in the middle of summer and stacked with driftwood. And yet those waters are connected. The present follows the currents to the past. South equatorial meets north. The last time I was on Vashon Island, Mother Orca, J35, kept her dead baby for 17 days 
pushing the body with her head through the water for over a thousand miles. The orcas are specific to the region, and there are only 75 left across three pods. J-35 was just north of me, where Canadian and American waters meet, and news reports documented her path daily. Researchers worried she wasn't eating with the effort of keeping the 180-kilogram baby afloat, diving down and drawing it back to the surface when it began to sink. Other members of the pod eventually took turns, helping with the physical labor of keeping the dead whale on the surface of the water. J-35 is nicknamed Telequah, also the name of the southern point of the island where I come from. It's where you catch the ferry from Vashon to Tacoma, a port city south of Seattle. Inhabited originally by the Puyallup people, who lived in settlements on the Delta, it was the site of a smelter with a strong union history. It's also struggled with corruption, and the parallels with Wollongong aren't lost on me. The orcas of the Puget Sound and San Juan Islands are in danger of extinction, and they are hungry, dependent on the Chinook salmon, which are now endangered too. The Lumai Nation, who see the whales as relatives, have resorted to feeding the pods with giant Chinooks. But overfishing and habitat destruction have made even these fish scarce. And now this vital link in the food chain is contaminated with everything from flame retardants and lead to Prozac and cocaine. Telequah carried her baby for 17 days. It's dangerous to anthropomorphize animals to read their behavior and assign it with human motives. But the whale's behavior and neuroanatomy indicate a complex inner life. Their brains are bigger than human brains, and their paralimbic lobe and insular cortex are both highly developed. They also have rare brain cells that signal a capacity for empathy, communication, and social intelligence. While we don't know what cetacean grief feels like, it seems more dangerous to assume it doesn't exist. So how does the emigrant sleep at night? It's well past midnight. I slip into my shoes and leave the house, cut over the train station, past gated car dealerships and the fluorescent petrol station. The beach isn't listening to the Saturday night drunks or the rev heads, only that ancient white-capped rhythm. Further out, black water and sky meld into each other, and Australia's whales make the migratory climb up the coast. But beyond, J-35 is traveling the Harrow Strait with her pod. What is my responsibility to her across the ocean that separates and connects us? Why this grief? Yes, the sadness of a mother losing her child, but also the idea that J-35 could know her species is in danger, that she might be aware she's not just carrying her baby, but all future whales as well that her vigil might be one of pleading, please keep your fishing nets and antidepressants out of our water. Let us swim and feed and raise our young. That she could be aware of her powerlessness. This perhaps strikes deepest. Governor Jay Inslee's task force on orca recovery made 36 recommendations. And now a year later, only eight of those are on track. And the task force is scheduled to to disband by the end of the year. Thank you, Shady. Um, I realized that I didn't actually introduce everybody um, because, that's, <laughs> because 
we know each other, um, but perhaps I should also introduce everybody else. Um, so you just heard from Shady Cosgrove to, to my left, but to my right here is my good friend and colleague, Chrissy Howe, uh, Kath McKinnon, also good friend and colleague, and good friend and colleague, Luke Johnson. Um, and I am Joshua Love, and I'm going to read a poem to you now um, called Sea Sorrow. In a foamy bath, drifting from scalding to lukewarm to wrinkling cold, trying to fathom a body of water, a body in water. A rubber duck diving and resurfacing, an ocean full. An ocean full of currents and undertows, slipstreams and rips, sudden dips in temperature that catch the lungs, dumps of rain, fresh water unmingled by the salt around it. Titanic raindrops, meniscus unbroken, salinity anomalies. Freshwater bathtubs traversing the ocean, sliding over the warm water like jelly, following the coastline, then then digressing, seeming to dissipate, then resurfacing in the Arctic. A supple sadness of bath toys jettisoned into the Pacific. A container of container, a children's palette of plastic. Raincoat yellow, raincoat yellow ducks, ketchup red beavers, Turtles blue like ice cube trays, Kermit green frogs. Following the desire lines of the sea, chasing the weather, warped by the mirror bright sun. Washing up on the sands of Waikiki in an Alaskan otter's nest, gliding the Bering Strait, furrowing through a stuttering creep of ice, then melting onto the rough shores of Greenland, bleached by cold and salt. Brittle husks of messageless bottles, half-crushed, corrugated, degraded, technicolour grains of plastic, tangled jellyfish bags, tumble-turning in the swell, the carcass of an albatross, nylon ropes unthreading, a rubber tyre, a lacklustre hat with smear-brown sweat stains, a single shoe, laces tentacling, a bathtub for mollusks, a packing case, barnacled, bellied up, waterlogged books that text illegible, a purgatorial vortex of jar lids and golf balls and shampoo bottles, labels faded and peeling. The corroded pain of fractured coral limbs, bits of cryptic sponge, the detritus of pearl, the thinning carapace of an oyster, a swarm of seaweed, a sea sorrow of decay, sweltering in a bath of murky water, phytoplankton gasping, a sigh, a cry, a surging sewer, the sticky sediment of phosphate, a body wash of silt, blooms of oil, diesel spit, a red raw gargle, a chemical peel as the ocean's vitals churn down the pH scale from limestone to salad dressing to a crumpled can of Coke, a salinity anomaly, leftover film of soap on wrinkled skin and a duck, acid faded, coming up for air. Um, it's so amazing, actually. You know, we've read these before and, you know, talk, heard them in our own little group, but when you read them out loud, all these new things come out. I always find that such a really interesting and beautiful process. Um, okay. Summer, hot, night, the river. Walking by the river. Three of us, Sophie, Lily Rose and me. Talking, always talking. A text to mum to say we're having pizza. 
She hates us going to the river, day or night. She thinks there's a rapist hiding behind every tree. There's not. And if there was safety in numbers, and if there was, we're not stupid, some crazy barcode attacks us and we kick him in the balls and run. We're smart. I'm smart. Oh, there's things we don't know, things I don't know, like what will happen tomorrow. My grandma's a hippie still. Mum's the opposite. Say the word sex and she jumps. Nine to fivers, Grandma calls my olds. They are old and they have no idea what I get up to. Dad says, these days, the river is biblical. Downstream, dead fish floating. Yellow water, not blue. Someone wants to plant willows, clean it up. Old Mr Brown says willows are weeds. Downstreamers say, there are weeds and there are weeds. They're arguing about it still and about other things, about how, part of, uh, how our part of the river and downstream, about our part of the river, sorry, about how our part of the river flows and downstream it doesn't, about how we're taking more than our share. There was a big blow-up at the council meeting. Dad was there. I wrote it up for Miss Wilson's science essay. Miss Wilson is an actual human, like a good one. She says I should send my essay to science geeks online. I'm thinking about it. Lily Rose is ranting about dams and water and the poem that we did in class where one girl wrote, we are water. She was trying to be poetic. I had to tell her it's a fact. We are water. A man is 60%, a woman 55 Babies, yeah, babies are like 75%. That's a lot of water. I think I might study science when I leave school. Maybe. I stop and look up at the night sky and see the clouds racing, deep purples and crimson. A storm is coming. I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking how amazing, the weather, the energy of it. It's the shifts that blow my mind. The way water can become a solid, like in winter when the school pond is covered in ice, but heat that ice and the water is liquid, and the molecules get jumpy and their energy ramps up like runners on a track. Hydrogen and oxygen are their names. Heat some more, and everything electromagnetic that binds those molecules gives way, boom, boom, it's chaos. Lily Rose calls to me, and I run to catch up. Whole patches of the river are dark. Lemon from the eucalypts, I can smell that, and grass and soil and dead things, dead wood, dead branches, dead leaves. We hear screams. They're coming from the river. Someone in trouble. We run along the banks and call out. Only a streak of moonlight on the black water. The screaming stops and then nothing. And then Sophie points to the middle of the river and at first it is hard to see but then we do see a woman and a man, a swirl of current around them. The man splashes about. He sinks down beneath the water surface, comes up for air and gasps. The woman holds on to him. She's treading water and spluttering. The woman screams again and we see the man go under again. We've got to help them, Lily Rose says to me. We are both lifesavers at the pool. We fling off our sandals and jump in the water. It's cold. The current tugs at my legs. We swim together, stroke for stroke, and when I stop to catch my breath, Lily Rose stops too. the man splashing furiously and the woman crying. We see the man raise his arms up above his head like he's trying to reach something. 
But then he sinks below the water and the woman goes under a bit too and splashes, swishing her hands around. I've lost him, I've lost him, she screams. We swim as fast as we can and reach the woman who is dog-paddling her way in a circle, looking for the man and yelling out, where are you, where are you? She flings her arms around Lily Rose and Lily Rose sinks and water spurts up, but then Lily Rose takes hold of the woman. I circle them both with my hands out in front, searching for the man. I know I have to dive under, but I'm putting it off because the water is another kind of night. The woman screams, he's down there, so I dive, and it's like being nowhere and everywhere, the strangest feeling, like a leaf drifting. I wave my hands in front, nothing. I come up for air, the woman, the moon on the woman's face, the light in Lily Rose's eyes. I dive again, deeper this time, and I touch something solid and a shiver goes through me. But then it is rough and I know it must be a tree trunk trapped by the reeds. My lungs are bursting and I let myself drip, drift upwards because I don't, know what, I don't want to swim the wrong way. When I break the surface, the woman screams, find him. She's still swinging her arms out in the water looking for the man. He's gone, I say, treading water next to her. The woman howls. Lie back, Lily Rose tells her. Lie back, I say to the woman, but she doesn't lie back. He might have drifted downstream, Lily Rose says. He might have drifted downstream, I say. I don't believe it, not really, but we have to calm the woman. Help me, Lily Rose says to me. I link my arm under one of the women's and we try to swim, Lily Rose and me, which is not how you are supposed to save someone, but the woman won't do it the proper way. She can't even swim, but she wants to keep looking for the man. She is ranting now and making no sense. I let go of her arm and I twist around in the water and I slap her on her wet cheek. I saw Grandma do it once when my mum was having a fit, this after my grandpa died. Hey, hey, I say to the woman, quiet now. The woman keeps screaming, so I slap her hard again, harder this time. Oh, she says, and she looks at me, but she quietens down. And she and Lily Rose bob in the water. Let me do the work, Lily Rose says to her, lie back. The woman does as she is told, and Lily Rose cups her hand under the woman's chin and begins to swim to the banks, pulling the woman with her. Halfway there, I take over. When we reach the shallow water, Sophie splashes in and helps pull the woman up to the grassy area. Sophie has called an ambulance, and so she runs back to the road to wait for them. The woman sits on the banks, dumbly staring at the water. We sit beside her, all of us dripping, all of us shaking. Lily Rose goes behind the woman and begins to rub her arms to stop the shiver. I want to say sorry to the woman, sorry for slapping her, but I don't know how to say it. So instead I ask, what's your name? Jasmine, the woman says. Mine is Madeline. Everyone calls me Maddie. The woman nods, but she doesn't look at me. She just stares at the river. It's like she's a zombie now. He's a DJ, she whispers, a bloody good DJ. The police come and two paramedics. Lights everywhere, people everywhere. The paramedics check the woman, ask her questions, wrap her up in blankets, lay her on a stretcher and carry her to the ambulance. She'd be 30 years old, I reckon. I don't know about the man, how old he was. One of the paramedics, the female one, comes back to check on me and Lily Rose. We're fine, just wet and cold. The paramedic gives us each a blanket and we sit wrapped up until the policewoman separates us to ask some questions. Me first. Talk to me, she says. I say my piece, then she goes to Lily Rose. I look up. The moon has dark clouds around it now, but
but there is a tiny glow, saffron glow, deep in the night sky. The storm is almost here. It's like I can feel it in my body and maybe I can because a human heart is more than 70% water and so is a human brain and human, yard, and human lungs. Even bones have 30% water in them. I'm thinking about what will happen, not just to me, to everyone and everything, to the river. Thanks. I wish now I'd said sorry to the woman, sorry for slapping her and also sorry that the man drowned. I don't know why I couldn't say it. I wanted to say it but couldn't. So dumb, really. I do a lot of dumb things. Babies. I've never even held one. Miss Wilson says I should tell my parents or tell my friends. She says it's my decision what to do. I keep touching my stomach because it's hard to believe something is growing in there and most of it is water. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm going to read an excerpt from a much larger work. Um, hopefully it's sort of self-contained enough to make sense. How many people here have been to Echuca down in Victoria? Mm, a few people. Okay, so this is set in Echuca. According to Google Maps, the drive from Hawthorne to Echuca is supposed to take 2 hours and 51 minutes. Because Marcos refuses to eat breakfast like a normal person, though, and insists on drinking these ridiculous protein shakes, which cause him to have to empty his bladder every 15 minutes, it's closer to four hours by the time we pull into the visitor centre car park. Not surprisingly, there's no sign of anyone from the houseboat rental agency. Attempts to ring ahead and let them know we were running late, once we finally came back into service, went straight to voicemail. The owner probably got sick of waiting for us to show up and rented the boat to someone else. If it weren't for the $1,200 deposit we already paid, this really wouldn't be such a bad outcome either. I say so because at this stage, the idea of spending 48 hours trapped aboard a floating hotel room with my near incontinent idiot boyfriend isn't exactly thrilling me. The houseboat we've booked ourselves onto is a two-person, five-star vessel called Rejuvenation. We've already taken a virtual tour via the agency's rental page. It was the only five-star boat listed on the site and the only one with its own promotional video too. Where the others had names like Murray, My Darling and Sovereign Pride and were characterised by an overabundance of lacquered, flash-reflecting, timber-panelling and garish Australiana, Rejuvenation boasted Miele cooking appliances, light-absorbing Caesar stone bench tops, and a tasteful mix of Indigenous and contemporary Asian artwork. What really sold it for us, though, well, for me anyway, was the Infinity Edge plunge pool, which hanging out over the top deck has been designed in such a way as to spill the river's filtered water back into itself with a waterfall-like blend of composure and opulence that even in video form seemed to me to constitute the very definition of the boat's namesake, rejuvenation. I'm out of the car and standing behind the open driver's side door, tying the arms of my windsheeter in a knot across my chest and wondering what on earth we're supposed to do now when I hear Marcos exclaim something from the passenger side. You know I can't understand a word you're saying when you speak that language, I tell him for the thousandth time. 
as I turn to peer at him across the sunroof. Apart from the two of us, the car park is more or less deserted. A couple of tea-drinking, biscuit-dunking oldies sitting beneath the roll-out canopy of their Winnebago over by the amenities. A man dressed in shorts and thongs carrying out some sort of repair on a boatless boat trailer down by the ramp. An empty station wagon parked in the spot reserved for centre staff. Its stick-figurined back windscreen providing a clear enough picture of the family of morons who usually drive around in it. Raising a protein-supplemented arm, Marcos points in the direction of the river and says, Robert, look, Robert, I can't pretend that this isn't one of the things I find most infuriating, listening to him say my name with that Brazilian speech impediment of his. The first year and a half of our relationship, it sounded like he was calling me Hobbit. If I was slightly more forgiving then, it was only because he was new to Australia, spoke very little English anyway, and frankly was good-looking enough for me not to really care. Six years on, though, and it's starting to wear a bit thin. Hobbit, hobbit. I've gone from subterranean dwarf to piece of phlegm caught at the back of his throat. Is it any wonder I'm at my wit's end? Any wonder I demanded a weekend of R and R? And no, I'm not trying to be funny. Like some lethargic tennis spectator, only just realising he'd been better off, he'd have been better off watching the match from home. I roll my head back in the other direction to see what it is he's yapping about this time. Unless it's the very unremarkable paddle steamer chugging its way toward a rust-coloured bridge in the distance, I must say I really have no idea. What exactly am I supposed to be looking at? In the water, he exclaims, like there was somebody being eaten alive by a shark or crocodile down there. I scan the stretch of river in front of me. No sharks, no crocodiles, not so much as a discarded share bike to speak of. What kind of river is this anyway? about the most interesting thing that can be said for it is that it looks much browner in real life than it did on the video we watched, which makes me wonder what other pleasant surprises we're in for should we ever actually succeed in boarding this bloody houseboat. There, Robert, Marcos says. Down there where I snap. Only this time I get no response at all, just the thud of his phone hitting the roof of our Audi, or rather my Audi, as he goes racing across the footpath and down the steep grassless bank. Marcos, I shout after him like he were a dog that had slipped its collar. Marcos! It makes no difference. He doesn't stop or slow or say anything. The only explanation he offers comes by way of the brand name printed across the back of his T-shirt. Super dry, it says in bold, meaningless letters with a constellation of Japanese characters thrown in for good measure. I watch him rip it over his head and fling it away without breaking stride. Then his shoes... Two white leather all-star high tops kicked from the ends of his feet as he ploughs bare-chested, denim-thighed and sock-footed into the dirty Murray River. For fuck's sake, we're supposed to be here trying to rehydrate our relationship, not our fucking skin pores. If behaving like some long-lost Amazonian relative of his were a suitable way of achieving this, we could have saved ourselves the hefty houseboat fee and caught the tram into South Bank. I could have thrown his wardrobe full of David Jones t-shirts and sneakers into the Yarra after him. I slam the car door and storm forward onto the footpath. It's lined with vertical hardwood posts to stop people driving down the bank and into the river, presumably. Nothing to stop dimwits from doing so on foot, though, of course. I try taking a deep breath to calm myself. Only the air is full of dust, also conspicuously absent from the houseboat video. Say what you want about, the, about cities and their smog, 
It's better than swallowing a wheelbarrow's worth of dirt every time you inhale. For a second, I consider getting back in the car, closing the windows, locking the doors, and driving back to civilization alone. They can keep their bloody deposit. And Marcos, too, for all I care. And, and that's when I see it, floating face down on the surface of the water with its black suit jacket snagged on the branch of an overhanging gum tree. It reminds me of the flying fox we discovered in the power lines out the front of our townhouse one morning, dangling by a single frazzled outstretched wing, only bigger, much bigger, human-sized in fact. Oh my God, I startle back, tripping and bumping into the barrier pole. I try correcting my footing, only something happens to both my knees that makes my whole body do this sort of weird bouncing motion, up and down on the spot like I was stuck in mud. Not actual mud, but the make-believe mud of my childhood. I try again, but again it's no use. I'm pinned. A child standing in a backyard waiting for someone to crawl through the gap between his legs so that he can reanimate and join back in with the game. Be careful, Marcos, I hear myself yelling helplessly and hopelessly. Helplessly because there's nothing I can do from all the way up here and hopelessly because there's no way Marcos can hear me all the way down there. Oblivious to my calls, he presses forward churning the water white with his arms as he pulls himself deeper and deeper into the river into the river and toward the lifeless-looking body. Help, I yell from my useless vantage point. Help, help. Pointing madly in the direction of the river, I manage to catch the attention of the old couple over by the amenities. It's the wife who catches on first, jumping up out of her chair like she spotted the ghost of the jolly swagman breaststroking its way across the water. Her husband follows suit then, sending biscuits and tea everywhere as he goes clambering for God knows what inside their camper van. Hurry, Brian, I hear her shouting at him, as though the emergency were taking place inside the glove box of their mobile retirement villa rather than right there in front of them. Fortunately, the commotion is enough to get the attention of the boatless boat trailer man down by the ramp too, who proves slightly less useless. Following our frantic signalling out to the snagged body, he drops the shiny tool thing in his hand, and goes racing toward the spot where Marcos first entered the water, thongs clapping against heels, coins and keys jingling loosely in pockets. Quickly, I call after him, quickly. If there's one thing you can't take away from Marcos, it's his physical condition. He works out four, sometimes five nights a week and has arms like the heavy plaited ropes they use for tethering cruise ships to ports. Swinging them forward one after the other, it takes no time at all before he's within grabbing distance of the overhanging branch. With the boatless boat trailer man shouting instructions or encouragement from the shoreline, it's impossible to tell which, he uses the branch to manoeuvre himself out to the spot where the body interrupts the relentless swirl of water. With a final heroic act then, the kind that makes me realise just how much I really do love him and how much I would miss him if anything were ever, ever to happen to him, my boyfriend Marcos lunges forward, catching it by the forearm. Almost immediately, there's a shift in tension. I notice it. The boatless boat trailer man standing beside one of Marcos's white sneakers notices it. The woman waiting for her husband to locate their first aid kit or mobile phone or whatever it is he went scrambling after notices it too. We all do. Something about the way the body's remaining three limbs flop back in the water and the way its head bobs up and down like a cork. It's subtle but nevertheless enough to inform us all half a second before Marcos himself seems to realise that this isn't a real person and thus not a real rescue.
Sure enough, it isn't. Rolling the body over to reveal a sex doll-shaped mouth and Clark Kent-style glasses, Marcos confirms what I knew before we even got in the car this morning, that he would be in serious trouble if he didn't have me. Where is your country? Two of Australia's most iconic rivers, the Murrumbidgee and the Murray, meet in our lounge room. They've been there for so long I often forget to notice. The artist's name is Arunga, and the rivers traverse a 22 by 12 centimetre plywood rectangle, black acrylic lines following the contours of his mother's country, land, river, sky. I've never stood at the junction of the Murrumbidgee and the Murray, Unlike the coastal estuaries I grew up alongside, I don't know the smell or texture of the air, the shape of river gum limbs, the bird calls. Because the joining of these rivers takes place day after day above our fireplace, to me they've become more mythical than real. So it comes as a shock when one day one of these rivers actually appears. We're just outside Canberra when it happens, heading towards the Tidbinbilla Ranges, making bets about whether whether the thermometer in our car will drop below zero as we pass frost-encrusted paddocks and road workers in beanies and high-vis jackets. We dip down a reedy embankment and an innocuous road sign announces that we are about to cross the Murrumbidgee. I'm ridiculously excited. My daughter, who is seven, begins bouncing up and down in her too small booster seat yelling, the Murrumbidgee, the Murrumbidgee! After we've crossed the bridge, she asks around a mouthful of almonds, what's the Murrumbidgee? (laughs) I do my best to explain the significance of this river, but I don't do a very good job. I'm trying to navigate at the same time, and instead of zooming out to see where the next intersection is on Google Maps, I'm zooming in on that tiny blue line we just crossed, watching it wriggle down from the snowies towards Gundagai, Wagga, Narandra, Griffith, Hay. Eventually it will meet the Lachlan, the Murray, pass through the almond plantations of Mildura and join the Darling. On the map, the Murrumbidgee is a small intestine, pastel blue, looping towards the large intestine marking the border between New South Wales and Victoria. Later, I find a Guardian article that follows the Murray-Darling river system from Cubby Station in the Darling Downs to the sprawling Coorong wetlands at the river's mouth. The satellite images are of patchy kangaroo-red wallaby-grey earth stitched together with the thread of the river, Casuarina Green. The Menindee Lakes on the lower reaches of the Darling are kidneys, teal and grey, marked by branching capillaries. This summer, over a million fish died here in an algal bloom triggered by one of the hottest, driest years ever recorded in this region. Thousands upon thousands of fish suffocated. Murray cod, golden perch, silver perch, brim, and that was just the beginning. More mass fish kills were recorded along the river system, including thousands of fish at Red Bank Weir on the lower regions of the Murrumbidgee. The scale of the loss is mind-numbing. Birdwatchers and botanists report not only dwindling numbers of, numbers of migratory birds at Menindee, but fewer native plants. Residents are worried about the quality of their drinking water. I've never been to Menindee, though, 
all red bank wear. So in a sense, none of this feels real. Their intestines and kidneys on Google Maps. Almost 200 years ago, Charles Sturt described the upper reaches of the Murrumbidgee in his expedition notes, subtitled Observations on the Soil, Climate and General Resources of the Colony of New South Wales. The scenery around us was wild, romantic and beautiful, he wrote, as beautiful as a rich and glowing sunset in the most delightful climate under heavens could make it. Further downriver, at Pondibadgery Plain, Wiradjuri country, not far from where Wagga is now, Sturt reflected, It is deeply to be regretted that this noble river should exist at such a distance from the capital as to be unavailable. The Murrumbidgee catchment now supplies water for one quarter of the fruit and vegetables currently grown in New South Wales, half of Australia's rice production and the Snowy Mountains hydroelectric scheme. I wonder how Sturt would describe this river now that it does wind right past the doorstep of Australia's capital city. How would he describe this river now that it has been harnessed, diverted, pumped, piped, sprayed, sprinkled, hosed, flushed, drained? How would he describe a river bearing water that is now part-owned by Webster Limited, Australia's largest walnut producer, whose website states that the company's competitive advantage is underpinned by the scale, diversity and surety of their water entitlements? The water threading through this wild, romantic, beautiful river is now bought, leased and sold year by year. The general resources of the colony Sturt described in his expedition notes have been put to use generating water, food, energy and wealth. On my quest to discover the virtual flow of the Murrumbidgee, I find images other people have shared of the confluence of the Murray and the Murrumbidgee, but none of them feels quite right. Where are the curving hills, the rippling plywood grain, the fine zigzag lines? Where is the black sun? Tara June Winch's novel The Yield is set on the banks of the fictional Murrumbidgee River, based on the tributaries of the Murray-Darling. One of the central characters, Albert Gondawindi, compiles a Wiradjuri dictionary, which includes the phrase, Ngandu Ngurambang, where is your country? This question, he explains, is more about kinship than location. The map isn't the thing, says Albert Gondawindi. This country is made of impossible distances, places you can only reach by time travel by speaking our language, by singing the mountains into existence. Where was Charles Sturt's Ngurambang? Born in India in 1795, educated in England, promoted to the rank of captain in the British Army after fighting in France, Canada and Ireland, and finally sent to Botany Bay with a boatload of convicts, Sturt was a child of the empire. He didn't learn the languages of the communities he met as he traced his way along the Murrumbidgee further and further from the coast. The relationships he formed with people who guided, accompanied and challenged him as he mapped the colony's resources were temporary. In February this year, a mass fish kill occurred in Wallagoot Lake on the far south coast of, coast of New South Wales. Thousands of snapper were found dead, floating in lakeweed in an estuary that's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. One night when I was seven, we came prawning here. I remember the excitement of our family gathering in the dusk by the shore, my old holy Dunlop squelching with summer warm lake water, the green handheld nets, the torches. I remember the flicker of something wriggling into my shoes and the clamour to take them off on the sand. 
We shone the torch into my lake wet shoe and found a tiny fish swimming where my toes had been. This place is not an imagined icon like the Murray-Darling Basin or the Great Barrier Reef. This is not a foreign land I travel through. This is my home. Those vacant-eyed, bloated corpses lining the lake are relatives of the little wriggling fish slip sliding against my seven-year-old toes. The Murrumbidgee meets the Murray in our lounge room. But flowing into this painting, between the irregular parallel brushstrokes, the golden plywood river, the thick black banks, are the Casuarina Hills of Wallagoot Lake, a stingray's dark rippling wing, the splash of terns diving to feed their young, the baking sand dunes and the whip of my daughter's hair in the gathering wind. I think that we they are being drawn to a close right now. So I would like to thank our authors all again. If you'd like to hear more from Wollongong Writers Festival, because trust me, there's some really amazing sessions yet to drop, or you just want to hear more from regional writing festivals, then head on over to our website, www.writesforwomen.com forward slash rights for festivals that's where you'll find all the episodes of the rights for festivals podcast or you can go and subscribe wherever you get your pods spotify stitcher apple podcasts all those good places please do give us a rating and review because then we can spread the goodness and other people can find us too thank you so much for listening to the rights for festivals podcast and supporting regional writing festivals this podcast episode was produced and edited by kel butler listen up podcasting podcasts for a positive world